0: I'm Stan Jackson, and uh, we're going to be reading the scripture of Ezra, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then rose Jeshua, the son of Jachadak, with his fellow priest, and Jeruboam, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen and they built the altar of the god of Israel to burn offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses the man of god and they set the altar in a place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land and they offered burnt offerings on it to the lord burnt offerings morning and evening and they kept the feast of booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings By number according to the rule as each day required and after the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at the appointed feast of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and carpenters, food, drink, and oil, to the Sidonians and Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that had been given them from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehoshaphat made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priest and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his sons and his brothers, Camel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of hinadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice, when they saw the foundation of the house being laid although many shouted aloud for joy so the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people weeping for the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away this is the word of the lord you may be seated
1: good morning uh, My name is Josh Govier. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I get the privilege this morning of speaking God's Word to you. Let me pray. Father, I thank You for Your sacrifice for us. I thank You for Your Word given to us that is um, always relevant in our life. Um, I pray that You will move today in my heart and the hearts of those who hear me to um, love and worship you because of who you are and what you have done. I ask these things um, in your name. Amen. As, uh, as John Paul mentioned, this is a continuation of a series um, through Ezra and Nehemiah of Coming Home. It's the time when the Israelites have been taken captive and released by the king of Persia. So, last week we talked a lot about that, of, of God stirred in the hearts of people. And that caused people to move. He stirred in the, the heart of a king who was not a great guy. Um, but he moved in his heart so that he would accomplish God's purposes, which was letting the Israelites go and returning to their homeland. He also stirred in the hearts of various leaders of Israel and Israel led them to give money and go home and bring a large amount of people um, to home. So we've talked about the stirring of God. And and this week we begin to see, as we continue on in the series, that that stirring of God um, leads to action when people get home as well. So we're going to be looking at the coming home and, and what's the first thing that the people of Israel do when they get home. What's the most important to them as they return from exile? Um, we see that they come back and they have a huge task in front of them. They have the task of reestablishing worship to God. They have the task of rebuilding the temple. They have the task of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, of rebuilding the nation. A huge task that seems impossible, especially with such a small amount of people and a relatively small amount of resources. They've just come back from exile, which, which, a little history on Israel, they were once a great and powerful nation, so powerful that other world powers came to Israel to ask for advice and ask for wisdom. Um, at one point they had um, more wealth than I can comprehend, but because of their sin, because of the sin of the kings and because of the sin of the people, that led them to be taken captive. Their sin led to their downfall, to their destruction, which led to them being taken captive as exiles. And here we see them being brought back. So I imagine a ragged bunch of people who have been through a lot. Um, They've been away from home, away from the temple, away from um, what God designed for them to worship for decades now. And they come back and, and we see that the very first thing that they do what they consider to be the most important is they rebuild the altar of the Lord. So in verse 2 it says, And Je- Jeshua, and Zod- the son of Zodiac, so if you just say it with confidence, which I didn't, but... <laughs> um, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So we see the two key people in this chapter, Jeshua and Zerubbabel, lead the people in building the altar of God. And once they set it on its place, they begin offering sacrifices. All this brings up a question, though, of why. Why sacrifice? Why is the most important thing that they do, why is the first thing they do to build an altar and offer sacrifices on it? Well, here's my sermon in a sentence. Renewal and restoration are founded on and centered on sacrifice. If the people of Israel are seeking renewal and restoration, they start with what they have to, sacrifice. That's what it's founded on. That's what it's centered on. As we seek renewal and restoration, it is centered on sacrifice. But why sacrifice? Well, God is a holy God. Which means he is perfect. Which we don't really understand. We can't really comprehend perfection. Because everything that we see and experience is flawed in some way. Um, Even the most beautiful sunset is not perfection. But God is perfect. He is without sin. Because he is perfect, he doesn't allow imperfections in his presence. Or another way to say it is, God is holy, therefore he does not allow unholy things in his presence. Well, the problem is, is what I just said, we have only experienced imperfection. We only see imperfection. The people of Israel are not a holy people. We are not a holy people. We are not perfect people. Not even the Israelites who were stirred by God and who are super excited about coming back and rebuilding and they desire to see God's name praised. Not even they are holy. Because the problem is sin, which infects us all. All of us long for things that we shouldn't. All of us worship things that we shouldn't. All of us displease a holy and perfect God. But because of who He is, because God is good, He designed a way for an imperfect and unholy people to be in His presence. We see, from the very beginning, God designed sacrifice to do that. If you remember in in Genesis 3, the very first sin, um, Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. God didn't think that was good enough. And so here we we begin to see sacrifice is what will eventually restore our relationship where God takes and he kills an animal and he uses their hide to cover Adam and Eve. Then later on, God, um, through the law, through Moses, instituted a sacrificial system. This is what the Israelites are coming back to, to sacrifice. God said, because you are an unholy people, and because I am holy, I demand sacrifice. Because sin demands punishment. But not just any punishment. Sin demands death. Which is pretty severe. We don't like that. Uh, When we think of sin or punishment, um, we would be much happier with something less severe. Obviously. But sin demands death, not just a slap on the wrist. Not just a try better and do harder. Because God is holy, sin demands demands death. So therefore, God made the sacrifice system where he said, instead of demanding your life, I'll demand the life of an animal. You can substitute for your punishment an animal where I will look at that animal as sin. And you will then kill that animal and its blood will be spilled. And that will allow you as an unholy people to be in my presence a holy God. So the Israelites start here with sacrifice because they desperately long for and need to be in the presence of the holy God. So they start with sacrifice. Not only um, do they need that, but as I said earlier, they are trying to um, accomplish a seemingly impossible task of rebuilding a nation, um, rebuilding a temple. The first time the temple was built by King Solomon, Israel was at the height of its power. King Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. He had unimaginable wealth. And it took him a long time to build the temple. The Israelites here, we see, have just come back from exile. They're a small group with not a lot of resources. And not only that, but they're afraid of the locals. They come back, and in verse 4 it says, for fear was on them because of the people of the land. The people of the land were, if you remember last week, Sergey said that not everybody was taken into exile. Kind of the the unwanted people, the people that weren't really valued, were left behind. Well, these people um, have followed in the sins of Israel, where they have gone after other gods, and they have worshipped other gods, and they have sacrificed to other gods. So, the people coming back, they're coming back, and they want to reestablish worship to only the God of Israel. And they know the people of the land aren't going to like that. In fact, some commentators and historians say that when they placed the altar where it belongs, that they had to remove a different altar. So, if I'm the people of the land and you come in and you tear down my altar and build your own, that's probably not going to make me the happiest person in the world. Um, Not only that, but you think that you're better than me and that you worship the one true God, but I worship all these other gods. And as we'll see in the future that these people really are a hindrance. They are in opposition. To an extent, they are to be feared. But I want to pause here for a little bit of application. We can't be like the people of the land. See, the people of the land said, yes, we worship the God of Israel. But we also worship all these other gods. We also sacrifice to all these other gods. Um, which in reality means they didn't worship the God of Israel because he is a jealous God and demands that you can only love and worship me. Now, as I say this, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, or if you're like me, if I'm sitting in the pew and and the pastor says, we can only worship God, I'm like, well, yeah, amen. Except I don't really say amen because I'm a little shy about speaking out in church, but... I agree wholeheartedly that we should only worship the God of Israel. Right? Amen. But, and I look down on the people of the land and say, those silly people worshiping other gods. But what if I replace a word with instead of worship the only God with, with the word sacrifice? What if we only sacrifice for God and not for other things? Then it changes how I think. See, if I'm, if I'm being honest with you guys, when I think about what do I sacrifice for, well, often I sacrifice so I can play silly phone games. I either rush through my chores, get them done, Maybe I do a good job, maybe I don't, but, um, or my responsibilities so that I can sit down on my couch and watch Netflix and play on my phone and relax. See, I'm willing to do other things so that I get to relax. Or sometimes, if I'm really honest, I avoid my chores and my responsibilities, and I sacrifice those so that I can sit on my couch and watch Netflix and play on my phone. I sacrifice other things for the God of entertainment. Or, other ways, sometimes I make my security the ultimate. Maybe I make security in my money the ultimate. So then I make my sacrifices so that I can earn more money. That my bank account can be a big enough number where I feel okay. So I work for those things. And then maybe, when when that's my goal, I ignore my Netflix and my phone so that I get work done and I get money. So I feel secure. Or sometimes it means there are parts of the neighborhood that um, maybe are a little scary. So, if my security is most important, if I sacrifice for my security, then I'm not willing to go to certain places. Not willing to, because my security is what's most important. So here the question is, what do you sacrifice for? What do I sacrifice for? Maybe they're not bad. Maybe it's not Netflix, or maybe it's not just your security. Maybe it's good things. Maybe it's your family. But when you make family ultimate, that means that I structure my whole life around my family. That they are the goal. Which sounds great, right? Family is important. We all agree with that. Scripture tells us, God tells us, family is important. But if I sacrifice for the goal of my family, then I make something that is good ultimate. And see, now I'm just like the people of the lands. Where I say, well sure, I worship God. But I also worship these other things. We just call them different things. We don't make sacrifices in ways of killing animals to other, anim- other gods. We don't make sacrifices or worship by bowing down to wooden statues. No, but my time and my energy shows what I worship at times. I make sacrifices for the God of entertainment. I make sacrifices for the God of security. I make sacrifices for the God of wealth. I make sacrifices for the God of family, we're fill in the blank. See, far too often, I am just like the people of the land, where I say I worship God and something else. But the Israelites, they knew. They were, they were right. Their hearts had been stirred towards God, and they knew we must only worship the one true God. So we'll we'll come back to that in a little bit about what do we sacrifice for? What do we worship? Um, Actually, we'll just continue on right now. Um, So instead of making my driving needs my entertainment or my family or my security or whatever... Just like the Israelites, we make our driving need, our driving force, worship of the living God. Which means, maybe practically not a whole lot different. Maybe I still do my chores, and I sit down on the couch, and I enjoy Netflix and playing on my phone. Maybe it means that. But, if it does, it means that those things are underneath the glory of God and that I do my chores not so that I can get to relax but I do my chores for the glory of God or when I relax that's not the goal but my relaxation my watching Netflix and my playing on my phone becomes for the glory of God or I work so that I can use and spend my money for the glory of God See, my work and my security are no longer the goal. They are used for God's glory. Or family. So we're all clear. Family is important. I'm not saying sacrifice your family. Um, I'm saying use your family. Yes, use your family for the glory of God. Be a loving husband for the glory of God. Be a loving wife for the glory of God. Be loving parents who teach your children well for the glory of God. Children, obey your parents for the glory of God. See, the difference is maybe subtle, but it's profound. Family is no longer the goal. Wealth is no longer the goal. Relaxation is no longer the goal, but the goal is worship and glory of the one true God. We must not be like the people of the land. We must be like the Israelites. So they they know this, and they're afraid of the people of the land. Um, And they return. They're looking for renewal and restoration. So they turn to sacrifice. So if we are looking for renewal and restoration, we must turn to sacrifice. The Israelites did it by slaughtering a lamb or a goat and pouring its blood on an altar. Well, how do we do it? If you look around, um, you'll probably notice that there is no altar covered in blood. Um, Not only that, but, but we don't make pilgrimages to Israel so that we can sacrifice animals. So how does this relate to you? How does this relate to me? These stories of sacrifices that happened thousands of years ago. Well, hopefully if you've been coming around for a while, or if you're observant, you'll see behind me a beautiful picture of a stained glass cross. Or if you've been coming around, um, hopefully, my, my prayer is that if you come here, you will hear what we base our sacrifice on, what the sacrifice that brings us back to God is. The sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross. You see, God made a way for an unholy and sinful people like you and like me to be in His presence. In the Old Testament, He used it by continually and continually and over and over and over sacrificing animals. As John Paul said, that doesn't really cut it. The Bible tells us that the blood of bulls and rams can never pay for sin, can never cover sin. But because God is loving, and because um, God is God, He gave Himself to us as our sacrifice. So that we, an unholy people, can not only be in His presence, but we can become holy. We become the righteousness of God through Jesus' sacrifice for us. This is the truth of the Gospel. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. You are a sinful person who desperately needs to be renewed and restored to the God of the universe. But don't stop there. That's half of the truth. The other half of the truth is that God made a way through his Son for you to be renewed and restored to him if you believe and trust in Him, if you turn from your sins and repent and believe in the living God, then you will be renewed and restored to Him. See, renewal and restoration are founded on sacrifice, but not our sacrifice. They're founded on Christ's sacrifice for us. This is the truth of the gospel. This is what all of Scripture is about. We see this here in Ezra 3, where the sacrificial system points forward to Christ's sacrifice for us, the ultimate sacrifice that needs to only be paid once and for all. But not only does renewal and restoration start with sacrifice, it's centered on it. We see that here in Ezra 3 as well. They start with the rebuilding of the altar. And once that's rebuilt, they turn to the temple. Well, the temple matters because God has said, This is where my presence will dwell. God has said, This is where my presence will dwell because here is where sacrifices are made so that an unholy people can be in my presence. So even the rebuilding of the temple is structured around sacrifice. And then from there, we'll see they rebuild the walls and they go to rebuild a nation and a city. But the nation and the city only matter because of sacrifice. So it starts and are founded on sacrifice. In fact, the nation of Israel built their entire calendar around sacrifice. We see that here as well. In um, the seventh month, we're told in the beginning of this chapter, in the seventh month they come together. Well, the seventh month is significant. This is when they start the Feast of Booths, which is a feast, or the Feast of Tents, or the Feast of Tabernacles, which um, is a time of extended sacrifice, extended celebration. It reminds the people of Israel that they were once slaves in Egypt, and that God brought them out of that by His power, for His glory. He rescued them from slavery. In the seventh month, they come here and they celebrate that, which is fitting because they have just been, again, brought out of exile. God brought them out for his glory, by his power, just in a different way. The first time he used plagues, this time he used a man named Cyrus. But make no mistake, this was God's doing for his glory that he brought them out of exile. So they come together and they are reminded of that by celebrating the feast of, Of booths or of tabernacles. So their whole calendar, their whole lives are centered around sacrifice. We'll get to how your life and my life should be centered around sacrifice a little bit later. So they're coming back to rebuild everything and they start with sacrifice because they know that without this, nothing else matters. They could build the biggest temple, the greatest building in the world. And without a renewed relationship with with the God of the universe, it's just a building. They could build the greatest city with the highest walls, but without a relationship with a living God, it doesn't matter. They could become the most powerful nation in the world where other nations fear them or respect them, but they know that without a relationship with the living God, it doesn't matter. So they start with sacrifice. So next, we turn our attention to the rebuilding of the temple. In verse 8, in the second year after the coming of the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtite, and Jeshua, the son of Jezadiak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua and his sons and his brother and Ketamiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Then they laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. Which, remember, matters because the, found, the temple holds the altar, which is where sacrifices are performed. So they rebuild the foundation of the temple, and now we see their response. And their response is what it should be. This is verse 11. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. He is good for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. They see the temple being built, they see the altar having sacrifices being made on it, and their response is, praise God because his love endures forever. Now here I think it's helpful to step back and take a wide view of Scripture. You see, this happened once already. The temple was built once already, the foundation was laid, and people came together and said, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. When David came and said those words, those are significant words, his steadfast love endures forever. See, David looks back at the history of Israel, and he says, God called a a people to himself. He called Abraham to himself. And then throughout Abraham's descendants, some of them who were not so great, God's love endured forever. God saved his people from famine through Joseph and his brother's sinful acts. So David looks at that and he says, his love endures forever. Then when they became slaves in Egypt, he looks at that and says, his love endured forever. And then God brought them out of Israel or out of, sorry, out of Egypt, out of slavery. And David looks at that and it says, God's love endures forever. And then they see the, the giving of the law and of the Ten Commandments. And they say, His love endures forever. And then David looks at the coming and the, the victory that Joshua had over the people of the land, the giving of the promised land, and he says, His love endures forever. And then David looks back at the time of the judges, which is our our terrible time where the people continually rebelled and God continually saved Israel. And he says, His love endures forever. And then David looked at the establishment of the kings and the rise to power of Israel. And he says, His love endures forever. God has chosen to dwell with men, His love endures forever. When he says forever, he's looking back through all of these things where men would give up. But God's love endures forever through all of the trials and tribulations, through all of the sin and rebellion, God's love endures forever. Well, here, the same words are spoken. So the Israelites not not only look back to all those things that David did, and say His love endures forever, but they look back on years and years and years of wicked kings who led the people to worship other gods, who led the people away from Israel. But yet God was still faithful, and they say His love endures forever. And the people look back on being destroyed as a nation, being defeated in war and taken captive, and turn into exiles, and they say His love endures forever. And then they are brought out of, is out of captivity, and they are brought back home, and they see the altar rebuilt, and the temple foundation laid, and they say His love endures forever. They have a whole history that proves to them God's love endures forever. Whether it's famine or sin, or sickness, or war, God's love endures forever. Their response is correct. Their response is worship. How much more can we look at God and say His love endures forever? We look back at all of these same things. When I look at the book of Judges and What a terrible time that was. I'm thankful that God's love endures forever because I see myself there where I follow God and then I sin and I I put myself before Him and He calls me out of that and He saves me because His love endures forever. Praise God. Praise God. When I look back at being brought out of slavery in Egypt, I'm reminded that God brought me out of slavery to sin, and I say, "His love endures forever." We can speak these words to a much greater extent, because the sacrifices that we look at are not just not animals that have to be repeatedly offered, but we look at the cross. We say. God's love that endures forever caused Him to give Himself for me. Caused Him to pay the price that I deserve, the death that I deserve, the wrath that I deserve. His love endures forever. There is no sin, no hardship, no trial that can stand up to God's love. Because it endures forever. Forever no matter what happens in life. Whether your life is great and you live the comfortable American dream, his love endures forever. Or if your life is by world standards awful, his love endures forever. Now, we look on and And after this reaction of, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever, we see a mixed reaction, a mixed response. Something is a little bit different. This is verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. Though many shouted for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouts from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the shout was heard far away. So we see shouts of praise, and we see shouts of weeping. I think there's a couple of reasons for this mixed reaction. One reason is that the people that wept Um, They see the difference in the temples. They remember the old temple and its glory. And by glory, I mean the physical glory of the building. They remember when when Solomon built it, that it was built with the largest stones and with the most wealth. And it was an incredible building. And they see this and they see the foundations and they say, it's not going to be as big. It's not going to be as glorious. And so they weep for that. I think, along with that, and more important than that, I imagine that the weeping is over the sin that caused the temple to be destroyed. Here is a a people that remember the glory of the old temple, and in their lifetime, they have seen the destruction of sin of their own sin, of the sin of the nation. The sin that caused God to give them over to their enemies. Where their enemies came in and destroyed their town, destroyed their city, destroyed their lives. See, they see the destruction that sin causes. And they weep over that. Because it takes an act of God to rebuild the temple because of their sin. Sin that leads to judgment being poured out. I think that's our reaction or it should be our reaction to our sin. If you take an honest look at sin in your own life whether it's the most private that no one else knows about or it's the most public and everyone can see it. If you take an honest look, you see destruction that your sin causes. If it's private sin, then no one else knows about it. You do, and you know that that affects every aspect of your relationship with everyone. Your relationship with God, your relationship with friends and family. Your sin causes destruction. Sometimes it's easier to see than others. Here was a very obvious example of the destruction sin caused. The temple was no more and had to be rebuilt. See, the Israelites, they're at a unique time in history. They can look back and weep over their sin, and they should. And they can look around them now and see that the altar is being, has been rebuilt and the temple is being rebuilt and that God is doing a mighty and powerful work in their time and they rejoice. And they can look forward to the completion of the temple and they can look forward to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ, and they can look forward and rejoice in that. They're at a unique time where they have been brought home But that their home is not what it should be. They are no longer exiles, but their home is not right. We live in a time where we can look back at the destruction of our sin and weep. We live at a time where we can look around and in our own lives see the God who is working mightily in our lives. We can look around at other people and see how God is working mightily in their lives. We can look at our community and see how God is working in our community. And thanks to the internet, we can look around the world and see how God works mightily. And we can rejoice in all of that. And we should rejoice in all of that. And then we look forward. Not like the Israelites to the coming of the Messiah. Not the first time at least. Because he has already come. We rejoice in that. But we look forward to the ultimate renewal and restoration of God's kingdom, where Christ will come back and make all things new. And to that we say, He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So, what's our response? to all of (laughs) us. Amen. Our response is worship, right? In fact, if your response is not worship, then you don't know God. If we can look at all of the wonderful things that, that Christ has done, and our response is not worship, We don't know Him. Because if we did know Him, because of who He is, He is worthy of worship. And because of who He is, that has caused Him to do what He has done. So if our response is not worship, then we don't know Him. And my prayer is that we know Him fully. That's what eternal life is, is knowing the Father and His Son whom He sent. Our response is worship. But to get a little more practical than just worship, or to say it a different way, let's look at what our worship is and how that relates to sacrifice. In Romans 12, verse 1, it says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here, I want us to see the connection between sacrifice and worship in your life, in my life. One of the primary ways that the Israelites worshiped was by offering sacrifices. So they came to renew worship. Well, here in Romans, we see that one of the ways we worship is by presenting our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. But what does that look like? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? It's not a sacrifice like the Israelites did where they kill an animal over and over and over. And it's most certainly not a sacrifice like that of Christ's. It's a unique sacrifice where only he can accomplish that task. So what does it mean to present your body as a living sacrifice to God? As worship. So we we talked about how we are tempted, how I am tempted when I am honest. I find myself worshiping other things. How do I know that? Because I look around and see, what do I sacrifice for? What do I structure my day around? What do I structure my life around? So this is a question for you to ask of yourself. What do you structure your day around? What do you structure your life around? What is your driving goal in life? For me, one of my biggest idols is Comfort and entertainment. So I find myself structuring my day and my life around comfort and entertainment and relaxation. But what does it look like to then transform those things and to structure my life around as a living sacrifice to God? So instead of waking up and, and longing to be able to sit down and relax, I wake up and I long to see God's glory displayed in my life. Which may not look different in the things that I do. I may still go to work and come home and play with my son and enjoy Netflix on the couch with my wife. But all of that to the glory of God. Where I work, not as for man, but as for God. I work in a way that that people should see what I do and who I am and not say, wow, look at Josh. But they say, wow, look at the God that he must serve. And I come home and I play with my son, not because he is ultimate, but so that I can train and teach him to love the Lord, so that I can enjoy the gift that God has given me. And hear me, my family is the second greatest gift that I have ever been given. But it is just a gift. And it is not greater than the giver. So I use the relationship with my family and the gift that God has given me to bring glory to Him. And I thank Him that He has given me a son and a wife. And I want my marriage with my wife to display the glory of Christ and His relationship to us. And I want my fathering of my son to mirror that of God's love for me and for us. See, it may look the same in the day, but the purpose is totally different. Or work. How do we present our bodies as living sacrifices in work? Well, we work hard, right? But work is not ultimate. Ultimate. The numbers in your bank do not give you security. Only Christ can give you security. So we work hard not to build up our bank accounts. Even though um, I'm not saying having wealth is wrong, but it's not the goal. If you have big zeros in your bank accounts, you have that so that you can use your money for the glory of God. In whatever that looks like. So, so your retirement is no longer your goal. But how can you use your time for the glory of God? These are just a couple of examples. Things that maybe I'm tempted to worship. That I need to rework in my own life. So I encourage you to look in your life and think, what do I sacrifice for? What do I structure my day around? What do I structure my life around? What's ultimate to me? Some of those things may need to be abandoned because they're they're not God-honoring. Others of those things may just need to be reordered and used for the glory of God instead of being the goal themselves. Now, one final note on this as we talk about sacrifice and how everything is founded and built on sacrifice, I want to be very clear in saying nothing that we give up is ever a loss. What we get when we get God far surpasses anything that we would possibly ever be asked to give up, ever asked to sacrifice. Whether it's your life, whether it's your money, Whether it's your family, whatever it is, whatever we are called to give up pales in comparison to the pleasures and joys that we get with God. So, in this life of sacrifice that we are called to by God, it is also a life of joy that we are called to by God. Not a, well, God won't let me have any fun which is a really, really common view of Christianity inside and outside the church. Again, if our response is not worship, and that worship is joyful because we know who God is, then we don't know God. Now, none of us know God perfectly, and there is always room for growth in all of that with us. So how do we do that? Well, it's founded and centered on sacrifice. We look back to Christ's sacrifice to us on the cross, for us on the cross. What He has done to make an unholy people holy. What He has done to bring sinful people into His presence. This is where God has most fully revealed Himself to us, in His Son, Jesus Christ. So we look back at that, and we get to know God. So as we transition to communion, I want us to remember that renewal and restoration are founded and centered on sacrifice. That we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, as worship, we can only do that based on the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. In that nothing that we give up compares to the joy of knowing God. So in a minute here I'm going to pray and we're going to take communion. This is your time to respond. This is your time to remind yourself of the sacrifice that Christ has made for you. Or, if this is new to you, and maybe your response is not love and worship, this is your time to come to the living God and repent of your sins and believe in Him. And you will be renewed and restored. This is your chance to respond to what God is speaking to you. Now, we'll come forward to communion. Um, If you're in the balcony, there are tables up there so that you don't have to come down. Here at Chatham, we practice open communion, which means if you are a believer, if you are a worshiper of God, please come and take. Come and take remembering the sacrifice. If you are unable to get up, there will be an elder that will bring the elements to you. Just raise your hand and let them know and they'll be happy to do that for you. Now let's pray and respond to what God has, has said. Father, we thank you for your sacrifice, for sending your Son, who lived a perfect life um, and in our place was substituted for our death. We thank you for loving us. We praise you for who you are and that who you are is worthy of our praise and our worship. God, I pray that you would show us our idols. You would show us the gods that we sacrifice for and that we worship. And that you will tear them down. That you will show yourself to us so clearly that anything else looks disgusting in comparison. That we will reorder our lives around you. That we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice in worship to you. I ask these things in your name. Amen.